Good, yeah. I'm uh, slightly shell-shocked, just coming from the forests of Western Mass after three weeks of uh, in uh, very, very quiet rural settings. And uh, I so far have enjoyed the jolt of the city here. <laughs> so, uh, just to give you an idea what I have uh, in planned for tonight. We, I would like to sit with you for 20 minutes, just arrive in the shared space of consciousness, building some silence, and then I would um, like to take up the theme of mindfulness and uh, respond to uh, what I believe are things we should think about in the popularization of that theme. Um, recontextualize some of the teachings of mindfulness in, in uh, the, the thinking and practices of early Buddhist transmission and look at three specific ways in which mindfulness actually transforms suffering. So far my plans, sometimes um, they don't pan out. Uh, but I, that doesn't stop me from having them, and uh, at least from stating them. So, uh, the, tomorrow's day will be dedicated to more in-depth stuff, teasing out some of the topics I hope to brush lightly on tonight, and basically deepening embodied mindfulness exercises tomorrow morning and tomorrow afternoon. So, uh, a lot less theory tomorrow, and more hands-on sitting. Yeah, very Pesachtic meditation. Good. Please take up an upright posture. Take a few deep breaths. Make sure that your belly has enough space. Uh, if not, you may choose to discreetly uh, create such space as is needed. Um, same holds true for things that are tight in your wristwatches or bangles or whatever may hinder your ease right now. If you're on chairs, I would suggest you try to put your feet flat on the floor. You. If you feel that they, you need something underneath your feet, uh, don't hesitate to go, go and get that so that you feel stable, preferably with some weight on your heels so that you can really sit out of your pelvis rather than hang in the backrest. Microphone is okay? Are we good? Yeah, good. Then let's just do a quick sense check. Zapping through the ayatanas, through the sensory fields. Hearing, quite obvious. There is a bit of city going on out here, the soundscape of Friday evening. The ayatana of seeing is interesting, under closed lids. What is happening? Is it really jet black and nothing is happening or are there visual experiences despite my closed eyes verify 
I have quite a bit of circles, orange and green and bright yellow stuff going on. Ranayatanadi. Sense of olfactory sense. What do I smell right now? What is happening in my olfactory channel? Let us sniff a, li a little bit and actually test whether I can detect warm spring evening here mixture of scents some have to do with other fellow human beings some have to do with cleaning agents some hard to describe where they come from but they're discernible I can identify a sequence when I breathe in. You notice how already slightly strange this is in a world dominated by eyesight and sound to actually focus our attention on olfactory experiences is a lot less common our gustatory world what does it taste like right now in my mouth what is the taste do I have an aftertaste of something maybe I don't have eaten or drunk anything recently so no aftertaste of food but maybe there are other tastes sometimes we can taste things in our mouth metallic bitter strange lingering sweetness what is the taste? What is zero taste? What does it taste like when it doesn't taste like anything? What is gustatory silence like? The taste of my own tongue in my mouth. A slightly awkward concept, isn't it? An awkward instruction. Sitting here and tasting the world without eating anything. Then let us connect with our sixth sensory channel, the Manayatana, which is 
my faculty of reason, my the mind base, which functions amongst other things also as sensory channel, and its objects are thought and concept, image, discursive processes. Now I'm not interested in following them, I'm just interested in acknowledging say the brightness at the back of my mind or, or those little words that bubble to the surface a little plop and then they're gone or the tenacity with which some of these things buzz around try to connect with something try to elicit something Just imagine as if you're watching from the outside into an aquarium. Big fishes, small fishes, some of them darting around, some of them leisurely floating. So our thought world and our concept world and our image world seen through the witnessing capacity as if we are looking into an aquarium with some exotic and some not so exotic fishes. We can notice the speed of their movements, the jaggedness, we can notice the size of their appearance. Maybe we can notice other peculiarities. And we can do all this without actually talking to them or engaging with them or following them. We can create the space and contemplate the inhabitants of our little mental aquarium. Finally, technically our first sense, our sense of tactile experience or more in line with the old term, just speaks of touchables. Nowadays we would speak of this sense in the language of neurology, we would speak of tactile experience when our skin is involved that we feel pressure warmth we may feel a little draft of air or the lack of it we may feel textures by with the help of skin so this would be all tactile stuff the, the pressure on my sit bones, the warmth underneath my palms as they rest on my leg, the cloth of my trousers, all, all those would be tactile experiences. And beyond tactile experience, we would have interoceptive experience, where our skin is not involved, feeling the body from inside feeling that it 
has extension, different degrees of pressure, density. softness and hardness. You may notice some areas to be quite clear, textured. Other areas just bland, strangely white blotches on our internal map. Beyond that, we have proprioceptive experience. We know the relation of these parts of the body with other parts. We can feel whether our shoulders are above our hips. We can feel whether our earlobes are above our shoulders. We can feel whether our foreheads are wrinkled. We know that one hand knows where the other hand is. We know that we can be relaxed or not. So those would be proprioceptive experiences, many, many of them. And one of the things we can also feel is the rhythm of the breathing coming and going. That is where I would suggest you settle your attention after this little cruise through the six sense channels, settling on the rhythmical bodily experience of breath coming, widening this body, building up a little tension, breath going, bringing a gentle relaxation, a slight collapsing. Let us not do this forcefully, let us do this gently, so that the space where I pay attention to is quite generous, at least the size of a hand. Particularly so if you do this in the trunk, in the abdomen, or in, in your throat area. If you do it in your nose area, then that space will have to be necessarily smaller. If you can, try to feel the rhythm of the breath coming and going in your body. Just what moves where it is most easy to feel sensations connected to the in and to the out breath. And that's where we keep returning with our attention. A gentle, welcoming returning of our attention to that part in the body where it feels that I am breathing. Strictly speaking, I'm not actually feeling the breath, but I'm feeling the sensation that is triggered by the breath. Try. Let us do that for a moment.
So, I'd like to ask for your kind attention. Um, you've heard the title. It's interesting to see with what, if one is living and teaching in a field with what one connects. Yeah. What bits one takes up of a broad tradition of many things are transmitted and which bits are being picked up, what, what uh, moves one's mind in many ways. And I, I guess it's fair to admit I, I am a trouble guy. Yeah? I, much of my teaching is about trouble topic. So, so other people teach about clear light of bliss or compassion or befriending one's own heart or loving kindness. And I'm fascinated with trouble. I'm fascinated with conflict, with ignorance. If I look at the titles of my the last 10 years of teaching, it's mostly trouble topics. So it's dimensions of ignorance and distortions of mind, uh, psychological pitfalls in spiritual practice, um, all this kind of thing. Yeah, maybe this one could go, could be switched off. I think that's the culprit. Thank you. So, um, this is a little warning. Um, I'm very enthusiastic about mindfulness, and it's, you know, it's taking to the main street. And uh, I am a mindfulness, I'm a trainer of mindfulness teachers. I, I, in the institute I have just started with three other fellow teachers has an explicit uh, line of teaching that is uh, for already existing mindfulness teachers I occasionally visit uh, psychiatric institutions and help their mindfulness trainers to dovetail their practice for work both with their teams and with their patients. I'm a psychotherapist, so I don't, in principle, object against mindfulness, just to let me say that clear. Um, and in, um, I envy the English term for it. As somebody who hasn't grown up in your language, uh, I envy the English notion of mindfulness, which is a, a serendipitous find in uh, the world of translation in which, as you may know, many things can go wrong. Um, the story of that word is, I believe, going back to the latter part of the 19th century, the word mindfulness uh, did exist. I found it in the 16th century. It's listed in Paul Grave as a translation for the French passé, which um, it has certainly come a long way since then. But it looks like the term has not really been in much use as a noun. And it has rather, it's rather contour and colorless if one looks at um, its appearance. And thanks to Google, we can look at this now very clearly, yeah? Our friends from <clears throat> Google Complex have given us access to the 15 million books they have scanned. And you, they have this little software called Ngram Viewer, which you can actually trace on the corpus 
Well, you can't read that whole corpus, but you can actually search that whole corpus, and you can give a date range, and you can look for particular terms, and you see when this term actually starts appearing amid, amongst these 15 million books, of which a substantial part are English. You know, they're not all the books, but it's, you know, it's the biggest corpus we have on, on digital uh, literature. So if you actually look at this, you notice that the term mindfulness doesn't really have much to say. The instances you find are rare, and when you find it, it is rather bland. But in the 1880s, a Welsh guy translates the Buddhist psychological term sati as mindfulness, probably connecting it with um, the adjective mindful, which is used in Christian context a lot. Be mindful of the needs of others and things like that. So mindful uh, as an adjective comes up in the King James Bible. So uh, there is a, a... a hunch that our Buddhist translator, in uh, analogy to the adjective of mindful, as it occurs in the Bible and in, in Christian context, has coined a noun, mindfulness, which has a certain artificiality or must have had to the, his contemporaries. And he coined that as the translation of the Buddhist psychological notion called sati. Ten years later, this term is in the Sanskrit dictionary. So by 1890, the term is established as the de facto translation for this Buddhist thing called sati, of which nobody quite knows what that is. And um, this term lives a rather modest existence in the shadow of other bigger terms and um, is known by Buddhists by Buddhist practitioners, uh, by Buddhist translator, and it is the established notion of, of this funny thing called sati. Uh, way b- halfway into the last century, there is no question that this is the best possible translation for sati. This is very convenient because, you know, the Buddhists then can just charge that term mindfulness with the specific meaning that term has in the context of Buddhist meditation, where this is a central term. And all is well. It's a fairly innocuous term. Hardly anybody knows it. And those who do know it are all in agreement what it is. Fifty years later, something else happens, like with every term that suddenly goes mainstream or goes viral, um, it becomes increasingly difficult to say something about that term because corresponding to the degree of popularity it has received, it has lost its original context. And this has happened with terms like yoga, or it has happened with terms like vipassana, or it has happened with terms like meditation. And all these terms have come to mean just about anything after a while. The more popular something becomes, the more difficult becomes to speak clearly about what it is, because it has lost its original technical context. It has uh, left the field of a band of a handful specialists who are all clear where that comes from and what it means. And now it's gone out in public. So mindfulness has gone out in public. It's arrived in mainstream psychology. And uh, if you Google mindfulness, you're very likely within the first three hits to find John's famous pragmatic 
preliminary definition. <clears throat> Mindfulness is the awareness that comes about through paying attention to something purposefully, non-judgmentally, in the present moment. Which is good, if you know what mindfulness is. <clears throat> then you can live with that. If you don't know what mindfulness is, you have three definitions there. A, mindfulness is awareness. Awareness is attention. And you go about it by intention. You go about it by, uh, in the present moment, and you go about it non-judgmentally. So, it's neat, isn't it? Three lines, a couple of adjectives, familiar terms. Forget Buddhist psychology, forget the context. Mindfulness does this. You can define it like that. Every undergraduate who writes about mindfulness will refer to this definition. If you have any doubts, Google. <laughs> <laughs> you read wonderful things about mindfulness. Recently I read, it's one, mindfulness is a thing that has no side effects and it's what Americans do against depression. And it works. <laughs> English newspaper. And you will be, if you care for Buddhist meditation and if you do sit on your bum for a number of years, obviously you care for this sort of thing. So you feel this is a little short-changed. I think the Buddha is a little short-changed there. So there's a number of things that happen with that term mindfulness. Four of those things I want to point out very clearly. The first of all is the confusion of mindfulness with attention. Okay. Mindfulness, attention are two different things. Attention is an ingredient of mindfulness. It's the volitional component of mindfulness. And that volitional component is needed, absolutely. But to reduce mindfulness to attention takes some of its best parts away. We're all attentive, you see? We're all at least episodically and topically attentive. We hop around with attention and hang things together. Um, but attention is not a particularly lofty quality of mind. It doesn't have any connection to our values. It doesn't really have anything to say about our ethical um, sensitivity. It doesn't uh, really say much about an empathetic coloring. Uh, nor does it say anything about uh, its fluidity. Yeah? So we're all attentive. And in many ways, that is a starting point. But to reduce the whole vision of what mindfulness is capable of and how it works to a simple term be that we choose just because it is a term that is familiar is a, is a sell-off. Yeah? I think another big issue is that we isolate mindfulness. The annoying thing about mindfulness is where it's coming from is it's utterly refractory to definition. Buddhist psychology has a number of imageries, of images for mindfulness. It has a number of functions for mindfulness. It occurs in a multiplicity of, of contexts and it does very, very different things. One thing it is, it, it does recalling of stuff. Yeah? It has something to do with the capacity to bring things that have been lost back. Yeah? The capacity to recall things. 
the English word recollection, or the very beautiful uh, coinage of my friend John Peacock, who says uh, he translates it as recollection of the present moment. So mindfulness within Buddhist context, you cannot easily define with a term that is known to Western psychology. And that's what it was down to. If you want to say something about mind nowadays, you have to say it in, in psychological terms. Whatever you may think of psychology, uh, since about 90 years, we think, when we think about our experience, when we think about mind in psychological terms. This hasn't been the case. Yeah? Emily Dickinson didn't think in psychological terms about her experience, if you care to read or Jane Austen, who was highly preoccupied with psychological processes, but she wasn't writing in psychological terms. Yeah? But our culture, since the 20th of last century, definitely has shifted to thinking about internal experience in psychological terms. In other words, if Buddhists want to start saying things about mind functions and about mind training, they will inevitably need psychological language. That's just how the cookie crumbles. That doesn't say anything about the value of psychology or about the um, applicability of psychological concepts to Buddhist psychology. It's just, if you want to talk about mind, this is the language in which that discourse takes place. So, obviously, we're trying to map things. We're trying to map these Buddhist bits, which have been more and more translated in the last 150 years, with the system and concepts and... and um, worlds we have gradually assembled in the psychological terminology. Now, there isn't really a clean map. You know? There isn't really a clean one-to-one -one equivalence. When I was 10, and I was urged to start learning French as a, as a Swiss kid, you know, you grow up with a dialect of which is spoken only by three or four million people. This is hard to explain to Americans who speak a language that is a world language. But if you grow up in a language of which you know by age 10 that it is perfectly useless for the most, if you want to talk with most of the world, then you will have to learn languages. That's one of the consequences. So they've foist languages on you. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Generally, it's hard work while others play you kind of you're trying to get familiar with French conjugation tables, and so or at least that's what your dad thinks you should do. <laughs> so when I was encountering this, I thought naively that if something is rhymed in French and you translate it well into, say, German, then it is all automatically rhymed in the other language as well. Yeah. Uh, and I found out this is not the case. In fact. You know, it's even a lot worse. You can, uh, even with languages that are so close, like French and German, people who have uh, passionately annoyed each other for the last uh, 1,200 years, uh, that you actually have sometimes great difficulty conveying one type of notion to another notion. This is, in French, is an abajour. It throws down the light, yeah? Uh, in English, it's... A lampshade, yeah? it protects the lamp. In German it's similar, yeah? Lampenschirm. It does what it, it, it protects the lamp. 
In French, it throws down the light. You, you can agree that we mean the same thing by this, but you already see that it thinks very differently. It looks at this very differently. Now, if you look at languages like English and something like Pali, which is the lingua franca in which Buddhist texts, earliest Buddhist texts are, are, are uh, conveyed, you, you are at a distance of two and a half thousand years and cultural, there's quite some terrain between northern India and Manhattan. You'll agree with me. So many things can go wrong. Or as one of your poets says, there is many a slip betwixt tongue and lip. Yeah? So the idea that we find neat matches for one concept in one language in another is just naive. We just have to give up. It's hard work trying to establish such matches. If we do find them, wonderful. If we don't find them, we need to look for the second best option. And that means lifting not just a term out of one context into another, but actually trying to take the humus out of which that term grows and move it across. It's like a plant. If you want to plant something from one pot to another, you, you can't just wetten the thing and then you pull it out and then you kind of plant it in. You you take the earth with it. Yeah? You take some of its soil along and make, give it a chance to uh, find its um, new place, adapt, talk to it, water it, uh, and gently hope that it will put down its fine roots and start looking after itself in the new environment. That's what translation does. Now, this translation needs more, more stages it's not done once and for all. Every generation, every two, three generations, we need to translate the stuff that is important and make it reasonable, make it palatable for our particular culture, for our particular generation. In, uh, say, Buddhist texts, um, this is done many, many times. Buddhists were great translators. Uh, the empowerment of the Buddha that people should know his teaching in their own languages which was counter to the Indian context's uh, received wisdom of the day, uh, his insistence started off a huge amount of translation school. So Buddhists are great translators. Chinese have translated immense amounts. Tibetans have translated so meticulous that in some cases you can reconstruct the Pali, uh, the Sanskrit grammar from the Tibetan translation you know, with the help of the Chinese parallels. It's quite amazing. Um, and obviously, Western folks have started doing this 170 years ago. And uh, the outcome of this is that we now have translations, particularly in English, you have lots of Buddhist translations. They, they read a little funny sometimes. You know, uh, One scholar uh, called this uh, Buddhist kind of English, uh, called it Eng Buddhist hybrid English, yeah. in analogy to a certain thing called Buddhist... Uh, Sanskrit uh, Buddhist Sanskrit uh, Buddhist hybrid Sanskrit which is a particularly bad form of Sanskrit Buddhists try to emulate Sanskrit language some, at some point in India and they came from the dialects so the Sanskrit they wrote is notorious for being not good Sanskrit by the, by the classic Sanskritists uh, it improved. In the course of the century, it improved. So, so some, some Buddhist Sanskrit texts are actually in excellent Sanskrit. I can testify to that. 
and I'm sure even uh, epical Sanskrit scholars would agree with me on this. But that's not done. One translation is not enough. We need a cultural translation, isn't it? We need not just a translation from Indian Indic texts into English texts, but actually into the language in which we think about ourselves, in which we think about our experience. That means it needs to be translated in a language that is psychological. And such a translation takes work. It doesn't come with clean little definitions. It takes work. We need to look at a context. Now, if we look at mindfulness in the context of Buddhist psychology, then mindfulness has many friends. Mindfulness works only with friends, in fact. The power of mindfulness is not that it is a unique feature that doesn't just help Americans cope with depression, and that might be useful for my life as well. Mindfulness actually is, although an indispensable quality, it only works if it has many friends. One of those friends has to do emancipatory effort. Another of those friends has to do with empathy. Another of those friends has to do with um, a quality called sampajanya in Buddhist teaching that is translated as clear comprehension. It's a contextualized type of relationship. If you take all these things away from sati, from mindfulness, then it's actually quite poor. It's quite weak. It's quite frail. Now, we have a problem. If mindfulness is part of cognitive psychology, and if it helps people, and we can measure it, we need to define it. And if you need to define it, you need to make sure that you isolate it from familiar factors. Because you can only define things cleanly if you can lift them from the background and isolate their definitions. So you need to get definitory clarity so that you can do your research on the effectiveness of the thing. Now, because this is very difficult with Buddhist concepts, particularly this concept, uh, and everything you can learn about mindfulness in Buddhist scriptures tells you do not isolate it. (laughs) It doesn't work alone. It needs friends. (laughs) It's a team player. (laughs) So... Scientific method demands for efficiency and for quality uh, purposes to have isolated, neat, clean definitions. And if you insist on doing that, you can't do that with mindfulness. So what happens is definitions of mindfulness become simpler and simpler and simpler and more and more reductionist. The only way you can get hold of clarity is at the expense of its connections with the rest of mind functions. So many of those tests which actually validate the power of mindfulness practice do test for something that, according to Buddhist psychology, you wouldn't call mindfulness anymore because it's, okay, it's neat and clean, but unfortunately, it only has 15% of what was originally there in mindfulness. Or it, it tests some weird little subset of mindfulness, Namely, its effect on forgetting, or its effect on emotional control, or its effect on um, capacity to distance uh, cognitive processes. Or, yeah. So, uh, we're losing, basically, mindfulness 
while we're praising it, while we're putting it onto, into mainstream psychology, while it, we integrate it, yeah, while we make it popular, while we teach it to, to, to people who have uh, particular afflictions, to kids, to corporate folks, uh, to soldiers even, yeah, while we actually try to do this, this very process is, is part of that which makes us lose it. Yeah? Which is a, if you're serious about this mindfulness, if you care and its effects, then this must be disconcerting. Yeah? One uh, other uh, thing that can go wrong with it is it's being instrumentalized. Yeah? In Buddhist teaching, mindfulness is a function that is not intrinsically liberating. Buddha never said, if you're mindful, your anger will go away. Never said, if you're mindful, you will be free. He never said that um, it's enough to be mindful and appreciate eating a resin or um, you know, seeing the blue sky or feeling the texture, as I said before, of your jeans underneath your hand. He never said that you will be free when you do that. He was very clear, mindfulness is a crucial quality of mind that has an instrumental role in the development of stillness and in the development of insight. But just be aware of what's happening in your mind is, uh, albeit a useful starting point, it is not actually intrinsically liberating. Particularly if this mindfulness is uh, taught as a cognitive distancing technique. Uh, yeah. And uh, that cognitive distancing technique is, uh, uses a lot of, say, visual vocabulary. So we witness things, we observe things, we get a perspective on things, we look at things from a distance. So we end up with quite a, a, a very particular type of relationship called mindfulness to our experience. And it may quite possibly be the case that we end up becoming a permanent witness to ourselves. So I kind of turn mindfulness practice into sort of, you know, like John Silver's parrot. Yeah, remember? I kind of, I watch and witness my life from a distance. I become a sort of permanent satellite in the orbit of a Kinjino. Yeah, encircling a Kinjino and basically see him go through his motions. There's a power to this. I don't deny this. It is particularly effective if you have to cope with flooding emotions or if you have to cope with uh, destructive thought patterns. That might be quite a useful skill. But mindfulness, as understood according to Buddhist psychology, can do a lot more tricks than that. It can do a lot more than just distance your your experience. It can do a lot more than just put you into a sort of permanent observation mode, yeah? where you kind of just see things arise, and if you're lucky, sees, and if they don't cease, you're basically paralyzed out there and have to wait yeah? till it's over, till it decides to stop. <laughs> and until then, you just kind of keep breathing in and out till you're blue in your face. Yeah? I exaggerate. Yeah. I exaggerate, but you know, Buddhist teaching speaks of mindfulness as part 
of a larger project called mind training. This mind training has something to do with development or calling into being, uh, cultivation in the widest sense. This cultivation uh, has various areas. One of them has to do with your body and the physical world, finally the planet you live on. It has to do with your, uh, with your behavior and your social world. You know, that's the whole humanity that surrounds you. Uh, it has to do more specifically with the capacity to still the mind, to regulate its speed, its intensity, its centrifugal forces. And it has, uh, in that domain, Chitta, Chitta Bhavana has to do with the capacity to develop empathy, forms of empathetic connectedness, yeah? metta, friendliness, loving-kindness, karuna, compassion, connecting with the pain aspect in my and in other people's lives. Mudita, the capacity to resonate in joy, that's where we can learn a lot. Upeka, that we can stay in relationship and be equanimous and serene. This is a powerful practice. Yeah. It's still a relational capacity. This is not just a mind state. It's one of the tragedies that Theravada Buddhism has returned these Brahmaviharas in basically meditation practices alone or in mind states. Brahma, these Brahmaviharas, these four forms of empathetic relating to ourselves and other beings uh, are occurring on many levels. They're not just meditative achievements. They're also things we are encouraged to practice with other human beings. And mindfulness or development means not just making the mind still, but also strengthening the mind in its capacity to do these four types of empathy. Loving, friendliness, capacity to uh, tremble along with, that's the old word for compassion, the capacity to experience joy and resonate with the success and that which is good in other people's life, and the capacity to be in relationship and sensitive to the other and yet leave the other within his or her own world leaving the other in his or her otherness rather than trying to read him through my grid or through my interpretations or through my perceptual world or through my value system, as we often want to. So that's the third type of bhavana. And the fourth type of bhavana is the development of wisdom. This is what Buddhists call meditation. I never quite understood why we've chosen this word meditation to translate these things, you know, because as you probably know, meditare means thinking. Uh, it's, a, it's a very honored uh, practice coming from the Benedictine tradition where you have you know, various stages, sometimes three, sometimes four. One of them is listening, the lec a reading, the lectio. Then you have the um, meditatio, the thinking about what you have heard. And then you have the contemplatio, the the non-conceptual uh, pondering of the, the same content. Uh, and why this word meditare, which means thinking, has become the word for Buddhist meditation, which is for most part precisely not about thinking, 
uh, has always eluded me. Nobody has ever admitted to having, you know, made that blunder. I, I'm not sure. <laughs> so, to come back to mindfulness, mindfulness plays a key role in all these four forms of cultivation, bhavana development. Now, if you suddenly realize that when the Buddha speaks of meditation, he speaks of developing the mind, training the mind in these four dimensions, body, social dimension, uh, stilling the mind and making it more empathetic, and cultivation of wisdom, and suddenly all this project of meditation becomes mindfulness, and mindfulness from being all the many things it is described in, in the teachings becomes me watching my thoughts in a distancing, observant manner. You realize that some kind of reduction has taken place. Yeah? And then when you, see, when you wonder why this doesn't work or why this leaves you still unliberated, you, you may think, well, Buddha was wrong, isn't it? Blame, it? blame it on the man. Or teachers don't get it. Or I need other trees. To meditate, you need trees. And I don't have enough trees here. We're in Manhattan. So we're likely to, to fault something. But in fact, uh, we do not acknowledge that in the transmission of a key teaching we actually have interest in and we're, we're quite willing to put in time and effort and, and energy to learn, something has happened. You know, we've kind of we've changed the thing. Even though we may praise it, we may write articles about it, we try to bring it out into schools, into the corporate world, into the healthcare uh, systems. Um, we're doing a great job at that, and I'm happy about this. But, but somewhere along the process, something goes lost. And it needs, um, it needs rethinking what is happening here, what we're doing. So let me try to summarize uh, a few things that I think we need to debunk. So one of the things we need to debunk is the present moment, yeah? the now. There is no now, let me just put it blunt, okay? The idea is that, you know, we have the past, which is a sort of hill, mountain, and then you have a deep, deep gorge going down, and then down here, where the future begins, down here at the bottom is the now, yeah? And meditation and mindfulness is basically getting yourself into this now, yeah? <laughs> And if you're in now, nothing bad is going to happen to you. If you can serve the eternal now, you don't suffer. So you need to get into now. Yeah? So you need to, again, this is a magic place where you, if you are, it's golden, you're perfect. You don't age, no wrinkles, no gray hairs, nothing sprouts out of your ears. You know, you're perfectly happy, you're perfectly safe, and... So meditation, and particularly mindfulness, is about getting into that now. So you need to squeeze all your life into that now. And then you want to bloat that now. You want to live in a permanently bloated now. Because in that now, nothing bad is happening to you. You're timeless. Yeah? It's a sort of a pipe dream. Slightly infantile. I exaggerate, and I trust you bear with me on this. But, you know, we have an almost animistic notion of the now, the power of now and to be here now and all this stuff uh, rings in our ears, yeah, because these are famous books and they have, you know, impressed many of us. 
But something happened, and I'm sure it's not even in the spirit of these authors that that has happened. So I'm not blaming them, I'm blaming us. Us teachers and us popularizers and us enthusiasts of mindfulness and meditation. Uh, We change things while we go about practicing them, cultivating them, teaching them. Uh, we, We do something. Now, I don't think it is well known that there is no Buddhist key term called now. If you go through the Pali Canon, the Buddha does not say, mindfulness brings you into the now. Make sure you are in the now. He does not say that anywhere. There's a few names for now. None of these words play any role in, as, a, as key terms. I, I've looked at a number of Buddhist texts. I'm doing this kind of thing for a number of years. You will not find a glorified notion of now in Buddhist teaching. In, I can vouch, say, for early Buddhist teaching up till the 4th century, where I have spent most of my time on There are plenty of words for now in Pali texts, but they don't play any doctrinal key role. The term that is sometimes translated as now is the term paticca samupana, that means that which has presently arisen. So it doesn't reify a piece in time. And with the reification of that piece in time, the golden now, tacitly reifies the self that goes through this whole story, namely comes from the past, tries to surf in the now, and gets dragged into the future. That reification of a self is considered to be a major problem in Buddhism. And if you're trying to get your poor mind to dwell in the now, you may actually tacitly corroborate a very distorted notion of a reified self that goes through time and your job basically is to squeeze it into the now. So it's the now according to Buddhist teaching is a stretch, it's not a dot. And the bit about the now that is important, the now by the way is not always of the same length, just to be clear. If you're mindful then that now is a lot longer than if you're scattered. So it's whether you look at this from neurological point of view, where you look how a brain actually puts things into present moment experience, that means generally something roughly a second, things happening roughly within a second are chunked together by our brain as being part of one moment. Or if you look at this from a Buddhist point of view, which is not actually interested in time, it is interested in the conditions that are presently arisen and it acknowledges that this moment this present moment is construed yeah? it is not pure it is not clean it is not, uh, it's not enlightened you're not enlightened in the now yeah? and you know things can go wrong in the now it can hurt yeah? you're not safe if you're present for what's happening, horrible things can happen in the now, just to be honest. So it's kind of a fantasy. It's a, now is a Buddhist fantasy, a childlike Buddhist fantasy. If I do something correct, it's not going to hurt. I'm not going to have these Buddhists, they keep telling me about dukkha and so forth, but 
I can go and live in the now. If I can move in there, not just visit, I don't have any dukkha anymore. I don't suffer anymore. But the Buddha never said anything like this. He said, okay, you know, there is such a thing as the past, and there is such a thing as the future, and there is maybe a little bridge over the, over the two, and this, let's call this bridge the present moment. And if you kind of look in the abyss, you see a few interesting things. You see how things have come to be, and you see how you construe things by prolonging things you believe to remember into the future. You know? And when you're on that bridge, you have a very good view on these things. And it's, it makes sense to spend some time on that bridge. You know? But it, it doesn't give you sort of a candy, and if you take the candy, then you're safe. It says you need to do the work when you're on that bridge. You need to actually study the construction of that present moment. You need to study the construction of the self that you believe is wandering from past to future. That's the work. That's what makes your heart free. Not that you kind of eat your resin in the present moment and you know, think that attending to sensory experience in the fullness of your mental capacities is intrinsically liberating. Yeah, it's a good thing to do. If you eat resins, eat them as mindfully as possible. Anything you eat, in fact, anything you do, in fact, there's no, no objection to this. But I think it has to be said that mindfulness is only the beginning of some stuff. And if, if we're serious about making use of these teachings, we need to look at the rest as well, rather than dance around um, this fetishized version of mindfulness and wonder why it doesn't deliver. Yeah. Because while it makes us feel better, yes, you can lower your blood pressure, nocturnal cortisol release, uh, you can remember things better, you have a lot less um, reactiveness going on. That's all good stuff. But you may still have a rather fat belief in a notion of self. You know, you may still have hang-ups and attachments. And they don't go away just because you have learned to mindfully breathe in and mindfully breathe out. Yeah. You're supposed to be doing something with your mindful capacity with your greater clarity you're supposed to be actually looking at things and sifting through things you're supposed to making your mind peaceful you're supposed to make your mind transparent so that it understands more clearly and if we miss that bit because we somehow <clears throat> have forgotten where the you know how the book continues and we're just fascinated with that bit we gotten hold of uh, we may miss out on some good stuff. You know? We're all making, we, we all may miss out. Let me end by looking at three different ways in which mindfulness actually does transform things. The first one, you see the big thing mindfulness does, according to Buddhist teaching, it helps transform dukkha. Yeah? Dukkha is anything that is painful, anything that is frustrating, the word suffering that is used to translate dukkha uh, sells it short. Most of you would probably right now say that you're not suffering. I, I just, it's just a hunch, you know. You're looking partly interested and partly glazed over. <laughs> but I don't see any overt indications of dramatic suffering in, in most of your faces. The Buddhist notion of suffering is not just about, you know, pain. It is about a variety of things. Overt pain is one of them. 
disappointment, loss, illness, despair, mental or physical states of um, agony are are obviously meant by this term. But beyond that, Buddhist notion of suffering has other uh, dimensions. So one dimension is that things have a fatal tendency to turn into their opposite. Yeah? The kind of the reversal of fortune kind of experience. Um, that many of the things that actually I like doing and I enjoy and that give me sense of gratification when I keep doing them, that they turn into their opposite. Yeah. A plate of spaghetti when I'm hungry. Yeah. There's something very nice having a good appetite and having uh, even a few pangs of hunger before eating is a very good feeling, isn't it? It, it strengthens the anticipation, then you go about your spaghetti. And while you go about it, and it's highly enjoyable, the thing that made you appreciate those spaghetti actually begins to wane. Yeah? While you get increasingly satiated, while you appreciate the spaghetti, um, if somebody brings you a second plate, you may be a lot less enthusiastic. At the least, with the third plate, you know, things will be sta- starting to die down quite dramatically. <laughs> and, and if, say, you're forced to eat a fourth plate, you know, it's downright nauseating. You know? So the process of actually fulfilling your gratification, getting the gratification, already transforms your capacity to appreciate. And this is real this is a real pathos with, uh, with desire, that we are infinitely more capable of developing desire for things than we're able to actually receive gratification even if we get these things. Yeah? That's what the Buddha was very, very adamant about, that our capacity to um, be desirous of things outdoes by far, our capacity to receive actually gratification, enjoyment, and a sense of fulfillment. You, know? you can use very different language for this. You can speak of your mesolimbic system, you can speak of your dopamine system and your uh, endorphin system, and uh, that incentive values, which has to do with desire, this is a psychological word for desire, the pull something has, you can develop A on just about any object. You can be addicted to just about anything in the, under the sun, not just to nice things. You know, If you look at anorexia, this is a type of addiction that focuses on uh, not even your body. It focuses on the increasing absence of your body. Yeah? Let alone we can obviously be addicted to stuff which makes us feel good for a while or has uh, gra- immediate gratification value. These are two different systems in our body. One has con- is connected with dopamine. That has to do with our capacity to get a hit. Yeah? And the other system, which has to do with gratification, has nothing to do with dopamine. It has to do with endorphins and serotonin. And these systems, when we get what we want, are increasingly tapering off. Yeah? We, we experience the law of diminishing returns. But our desire system, if you look at these curves, has a very different development. So we can, the capacity to develop what? Wanting and the capacity to actually maximize gratification are unfortunately, there's a huge cleavage there. Yeah. One shoots up and the other one tapers off, down. 
This is what the Buddha means with tanha. Even if we get what we want, we're not happy. And many things can go wrong before that. You know, you don't have any guarantee that you do get what you want. That's suffering. If you get it, you may not, it may not do what you expected it to do. That's suffering. You get it and it may not be enough. That's suffering. You get it, it does exactly what you wanted. You enjoy it and then you get used to it. That's suffering. You get it, it does exactly what you want. You enjoy it. You don't lose the gratification on it. You start getting worried about having it tomorrow or whether the millers from next door have a bigger one or, you know. There's so many ways you can get into suffering even if you do get the stuff you want. And our capacity for wanting is unfortunately a lot more insatiable than our capacity to receive gratification. There is a real issue there. Whether you look at this from neurophysiology or whether you look at this from Buddhist psychology, the statement is devastatingly similar. If you look at, if you have anything to do with addiction, you will know what I talk. Because it's very obvious that people receive the biggest dopamine hits when they are not satisfied. They're not receiving the big hits when they're satisfied. What, it, what gets them addicted is not the gratification. What gets them addicted is a dopamine release that is at its highest when we don't get what we want. Yeah. And it's really tragic. That means we can't get enough. <laughs> you know, that's what the Buddha said. The type of thirst that is unquenchable is at the root of our system. And if we don't understand this, we keep looking for gratification in ways that don't work. It's not immoral to have gratification. The tragedy is it doesn't work. That's his reason. So, uh, mindfulness changes dukkha in a first instance by allowing us to choose where we attentionally focus. Yeah? Our attention comes of two sorts. One of them is involuntary. It's pulled out of us. We have a lot of the genetic uh, and evolutionary uh, reinforcements in the, this direction. We don't need to learn this. Our attention goes to strong stimuli. Sudden things, fast things, loud things, shrill things, um, unexpected things. And this type of attention is constantly pulled out of us. And then there's a second type of attention called voluntary attention, which is a lot slower in its development. It needs training. It can be built up. In fact, I can choose where my attention goes. That's possible, but it's not quite easy. It takes training. Very useful. If you want to think, if you want to work, if you want to do anything that has success in your life, you need to develop this bit. Everybody knew that. From the Greeks onward, it was known. Most vociferous about it, William James, 1890, Principles of Psychology, a whole chapter on it, very beautiful, intuitive, without quality self-reports and mindfulness studies, he had some very, very insightful things to say about attention. If our attention, by dint of choice, can be directed to something that is useful or rewarding or gratifying or less pain-inducing, then this is useful. And that's the first way how training of mindfulness helps. It can help us shift the content of our experience by focusing on something else. Instead of focusing on an unhappy thought pattern, we can just feel where 
the unhappiness is in the body, for example. This is counterintuitive, takes some effort, takes some exercise, but if we learn to do that, it's possible that you can breathe away fear, for example. So rather than thinking about worry and thereby feeding your worry, you can breathe into the belly where it feels a little worried. And if you can handle the unpleasantness of the bodily sensation and make an object of this experience and attend to it, you will decrease your worry within less than 10 minutes. It may not go completely and it will come back maybe, but you're certainly capable of modulating this experience quite dramatically and quite immediately. Get rid of one big problem because we're generally not just unhappy about unpleasant feelings, we're also worried that they can grow infinitely, that we are overwhelmed by them. So even if they don't completely go away, when we can reduce them, we lose our helplessness. That's very powerful. We experience, we are not victims of our experiences. And we notice we can put up with quite a bit of discomfort and we can put up with a lot more discomfort if we're actually feeling we're not helpless. So this first way sati can change dukkha is very powerful. If we remember that we can choose where our attention goes and make good use of this capacity to choose, if we have some training to do this, We have a lot of power at our fingertips there. Second dimension in which sati changes uh, dukkha is uh, rather than shifting the content, I'm actually changing the relationship to this thing. So rather than having a reactive habit of dislike or aversion or pushing away or even displacing when it's this unpleasant, I am changing the relationship I'm having to the thing. So rather than shifting the focus, the content, I'm shifting actually my relationship. I try to suddenly welcome in unpleasant stuff. I'm interested in things I don't like rather than just interested in not having things I don't like. This is very, very powerful. Suddenly it's possible to practice things like interest for things that do not intrinsically hold gratification value for me. Suddenly it is possible to recognize my reactiveness pattern. Buddhist teaching has a lot to say. Non-greed, non-aversion, non-reactiveness. Santuti, contentment. Avihingsa, non-violence. Adosa, non-aversion. These are wonderful practices. wonderful emphasis on cultivating qualities of mind that help me not being my number all the time. I do not have to repeat my patterns. If I find that my patterns are not making me happy, and good chances are that they don't make your neighbors and your lovers and so and your kids happy either. If you're interested in changing this, then this is a huge message. I can change Things that do not produce happiness and produce uh, that may not be skillful in my life. I'm not condemned to repeat that. If I know how painful this is, if I can acknowledge that it takes place, if I can learn to let it take place slower, I have a lot of tools to actually undo patterns that are not helpful. We all know people who change their lives. I know people who have stopped smoking after 40 years. 
just stopped. Something in them has changed, and with that change, their whole addiction has gone. Yeah? Or they had the resources to cope with the fallout of an addiction and wean themselves off. It's powerful. Yeah? People can change. You will know such people. You will know from yourself that things have changed in your heart. So that second type of shift is very powerful. The third is the most tricky one. And when the first one is about the object that we choose to shift, the second one is the relationship that we choose to shift. In the third type, mindfulness helps us to address dukkha. Is I'm using mindfulness to deepen the understanding of the place from which I experience. In other words, I get a perspective on self, on self-construct. Or if you want it in Buddhist terms, on anatata, impersonality, on emptiness, on things like non-reification and non-identification. Yeah, these are big words, and obviously this is not something uh, that is e easily done. But mindfulness is understood to be very, very instrumental in learning to actually rather than fiddle with the world out there, or even fiddle with my relationship to the world, learning to deepen and instill reality into understanding the place from where I actually experience, yeah? from the self-construct, looking at what builds that self-construct, acknowledging the impersonality, the universal nature of the uh, characteristic, acknowledging the possibility of being fully embodied, fully responsible and an agent without having to have a big fat self at the wheel. Yeah. This is a very powerful way mindfulness can work. I hope to tease out some of this tomorrow. Uh, thanks for your patience and I would like to let you off the hook. Yeah. Can we, is this as much air as we get in here? If there isn't more possible, then we just have to put with it. Please uh, move a little bit. If there are questions or anything I can uh, address, I'm happy to. Good, we have a microphone, so please. Hi, thank you for the teaching. Uh, this is the first time I heard like the explanation about all now, which I think is really interesting. Because like, there's a little, I know, like there's a little like a paragraph or sentence in the Diamond Sutra that talks about the past, the, the present, and the future are not like attainable or should not be grasped already. And I always like get really confused. Yeah, so that's um, I just have a question that you mentioned about the clarity of the mind um, on mindfulness and meditation. So like when, like um, as I study Buddhism, I think there's some stuff like that just naturally comes up and then I get really, like I get really interested like in different teachings or there's like a lot of like spirituality stuff out there and there's like Buddhism with like a different tradition, Mahayana, Zen, and all the So I'm like interested in like everything. Like I'll just like go and read up stuff or, or Google like a question, even a question I feel very uncomfortable with, I'll still go on Google and try to really try to understand a little bit more. And then sometimes I find there's some stuff that's out there it's it seems it sounds nice but at the very end of it it's really like holding to a really strong concept of this like the idea of that stuff or like the idea of like me 
And so, in terms of clearing of the mind, like when I'm pursuing the study, and now I don't have like ex- established, experienced teacher that I can always like relate to. Like, how how would I figure out like what's really clear to me, like in my mind that comes up to like cut out the distraction? That's like the part of the distraction. I know it's coming from me too because I'm seeking the outside stuff. But I think this is a challenging. I also read like yeah. that a lot of a. I guess beginner Buddhist like encounter. You know the the web is like samsara. It's like samsara. Yeah. It's you can't trust anonymous sources. You you need to establish relationship. You need to find identify voices that you feel are trustworthy, and you need to find sources that you feel are trustworthy, and preferably you know people teachers. Uh, you know, we live at in, in a fascinating time when we have so much access to Buddhist teachings. We probably have more access to Buddhist teachings than Bud- than my Buddhist teachers have had, to be honest with you, because they will only have had access within their own tradition. But now Buddhism actually talks with itself, has started talking with itself across traditions. And with, you know, the net, now we have an immense amount of resources, personal opinions, again, you know, side by side with the most um, well-documented scholarly opinion. You need to find out what you can trust. It's just, it's like eating. Just because it's all there doesn't mean you need to eat it all. You need to find out what is good for you. And... It seems useful to have connections to people, you know. I'm not even speaking, you need to find a guru. That's not, um, if you find a teacher, wonderful, don't hesitate. But you need to find spiritual friends, people with whom you actually practice together. You need a sangha. You know, all the whole monastic life in Buddhism begins with noble friendship. The core of community is noble friendship. You need people with whom you share an aspiration, practice together. People who know you and still like you. (laughs) And people whom you trust that they tell you things you don't want to hear. Okay? These are precious people. That's... Things will become clear where you will listen more and where you will listen less. You will identify traditional voices that may help you or traditions that may not so much help you. Um, I gather that you probably speak Chinese. So you have access to the Chinese sources. Um, If you just want a hint, a pointer, I mean, look at some of the Agama teachings. These are very, very early forms of Buddhist teachings. They have parallels in the Pali Nikayas and the Chinese tradition has translated very early on, has made beautiful work. So you find that the Taisho is in, in, uh, accessible electronically in C-beta, for example. If you want to read probably the oldest Buddhist texts in Chinese, then these would be the Agamas. But these texts will speak to you in a language that you have not grown up with. Yeah? Generally, reading these texts will need people to help you explain these texts. But they give you a flavor. 
And I would suggest you do what you do now. You go and look and listen to people. And if they make sense, you listen a little longer. If they don't make sense, you go and look at the next. You need to find out what you need. Whatever these people tell you, they can't tell you what you need. Only you can find out. So you need to be your own expert. And then you listen carefully. Um, and you will figure out things. Look at people. What do they say? How do they live? Um, how are they when they're off guard? It's always interesting to look. What do they do with money, power, sex? That be those be questions I would ask to somebody who is a teacher. You know, he should be clear. He or she should be clear in these matters. Um, are they helpful? <laughs> are they kind? <laughs> yeah. Do do they want lots of money? <laughs> you know, you know, be reasonable. Kind of be, use your common sense, and connect. Find out. It's you know, it's difficult to orient. And for you, if you have access to Chinese, you have more options. Yeah. So you'll need to find your way in there. Yeah. Nice. Good Thank luck. You. Thank you. Good. If no questions are, then let us sit for another 15 minutes. So let's acknowledge that we, we have access to goodness in ourselves and we have privileges in this world. Let's take a moment to be conscious, appreciative and grateful for the people in our lives that are kind to us, are important and precious. Let us spread the warm, gentle awareness in the middle of our chest. Let's breathe in there into that chest, feeling the breath, feeling the chest, and adding a little wish. May this being here be well. Try out whether you just refer yourself, refer to yourself as I, may I be well. Or try out your name. And on breathing out, you wish there are people in your life that are important, that you feel gratitude for. You wish them well. So breathing in, may I be well. Breathing out, may the people in my life be well. Begin with the people who are here. May the people here be well and the people in my life. With every breath, you murmur, to yourself to wish that you yourself may be well and that the people in your life may be well. So you connect the breath, you connect the sensation in the chest and you connect your wish to these two. May I be well, may the people in my life be well. May I, may I be free from suffering and affliction. May the people in my life be free from suffering and affliction. 
May I be free from suffering and affliction. May the precious people in my life be free from suffering and affliction. May I live safely and with contentment. May the people in my life live safely and with contentment. May I live safely and find contentment. May the beings in my life live safely and find contentment. Thank you for coming. Have a good evening and I hope to see some of you tomorrow. Yeah. Be well. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.